It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am happy to be joined today by Michelle Dickinson. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. How is it in New Jersey? It's really warm today. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like the middle of summer has happened in June. Yeah, well, we had snow one week and 100 degrees the next week, it seems like here. (laughs) That's great. Welcome to... Montana weather. That's awesome. Well, let me tell tell you a little bit about Michelle. Michelle is a very passionate mental health advocate, a TED speaker, a published author of a memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. She goes first and sees herself as a bridge that helps people get comfortable with their mental health so that they can reach out and get the support they need before they hit a crisis. She makes it okay to not be okay and thrives on making a real difference in the lives of others, especially around their well-being. Michelle is out to do her part to eliminate the stigma by normalizing the mental health conversation within the workplace and beyond. So you have a passion for mental health. I do. I do. Um, and, you know, if you would have asked me even, I don't know, five years ago, if this is where, what I'd be doing, I would never have thought it would be possible, to be honest with you. What were you doing five years ago? I was working in the pharmaceutical industry in regulatory quality management. What does that mean? Well, it was a, largely supporting regulatory personnel when it came to uh, regulations from the Food and Drug Administration and okay. the, so training related to regulations. Did you enjoy that work? I did. You know, I really loved the people I got to work with, um, but then something happened and I was invited to give a TED Talk and that pretty much changed everything changed it all. So the TED Talk, Perfect Just the Way You Are, I had a chance to listen to it. It was excellent. I really appreciated it. So tell us why you named it Perfect Just the Way You Are. You know, it was one of those things. I had always been in disagreement with my mother's mental health um, and in disagreement with the way that she treated me. Um, But I think through my own self discovery work and my own healing, I realized that she really was perfect just the way she was um, more than anything. And it's when we disagree with reality that we create our own suffering. So, Mm. you know, it took a long time to get there. It didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of healing. But in the end, I realized that she was perfect just the way she was. And it taught me a lot. Yeah. So your focus and passion on mental health has been informed by your childhood, caring for your mother with bipolar. Tell us, tell us what that was like. What was your environment like growing up? Yeah. You know, I didn't really know any different. It's interesting. People say, well, was it hard? And you know, you, you know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. I I just, I knew that my mom's moods were very volatile and I never knew the mom that I would come home to if she would be in a good mood, in a bad mood, in a in a sad mood. I just never knew. So it was like I equate it to rolling to riding a roller coaster. There were mm-hmm. a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And 
you know, I just sort of hung on for the ride and just did what I needed to, to, to sort of navigate that, not even thinking twice about it, you know, and until I would go to like a girlfriend's house and realize that this is a very different dynamic. A mother daughter relationship is a very different dynamic than what goes on in my home. Right. So I think that's when I realized it was a little bit different. Did, did she have like the real high highs and the real low lows and the manic phases and stuff like that? Yeah. When she was in her manic state, it was like euphoria. There was nothing you could do wrong. She was very happy. We would go on shopping sprees. We would, we would, you know, go to the ice cream parlor. It was pretty much Disney. But then when she would crash, it would be horrible because she would cry you know, and there was nothing you could do to console her. She would cry for hours on end and not sleep at night and be like sitting up crying all night. And it was really hard to witness. Would she be down for days on end or did that, did it just kind of daily go up and down? Yeah, it depended. I mean, she had um, moments where she was medicated and she was like sort of even, but then, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges back then was that people who suffered from bipolar would start to feel better and not believe it was the medication. So they Mm -hmm. pulled themselves off of their own drugs and then they would crash and it would be even harder for them to deal with. So with my mom, she had been hospitalized quite a few times throughout my childhood um, just because it would just get so bad that there was nothing that could be done at home that she would have to go and be in, in a hospital setting. How, how as a child, do you, um, figure that out in your mind that your mom's in the hospital for mental health? Like, what is that conversation in your brain? Like just mom sick or. Yeah. I mean, I, my dad and my aunt did a good job explaining to me that my mom just, you know, wasn't, wasn't healthy. She just, she needed, she needed a doctor to care for her. Um, but at the same time, you don't dare talk about that. It was even more stigmatized back then. So I really didn't have the freedom to talk to anyone about it. So it was hard. Right. Um, so for me, it was like, well, I know that when she comes home, she's better. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm looking forward to. And, oh, I get to be cared for by my grandma and I love my grandma. So I would try to find the good, you know? Yeah. So you talk in your TED talk about um, just really powerfully about uh, coming home from school and not being sure if the door would be locked or if it would be opened by a happy mom or, I mean, tell us about that. Yeah, my mom was really strict. So she had these, you know, I write about this in the book, that there was the manic mom, there was the depressed mom, there was the sad mom, and there was the mean mom and the abusive mom. So there were always these different iterations of my mom. And I never knew, like, I would always come home from school and I put my hand on the doorknob. And I would just hope that she was going to be smiling and in a good mood, but I never knew. Mm. Um, And it was hard because... Um, you know, I, I wanted always to see the happy mom, but that sometimes, you know, because she was so strict, she had an expectation that I'd be home at a certain time. And if I was late, she would lock me out and I would have to sit outside until she was good and ready to let me in because she was proving a point that I didn't follow the rules. Um, so that was hard as a little girl. If it's in the wintertime and you're sitting outside on the pavement waiting for your mother to let you in and you're 10 minutes late. Wow. 
Well, and you, you draw a, um, you draw an analogy from that, um, talking about, talking about, you know, trying to get into your mother's world. And as somebody who suffers from mental illness, um, getting into her world was probably, um, nearly impossible. It was, it absolutely was, you know, it's the feeling of being with someone and being so far away from them. Um, there were times when my mom was too fragile to be left home alone and my dad had to work. And so he would ask me to stay home with her because she was too fragile to be left alone, not sick enough to be put into the hospital. So like I would sit with her. I remember this for hours in her, in her TV room and watch TV with her. And it was like, I was with, it was like, I was by myself because she wouldn't, Mm. she wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't let me in. She wouldn't she wouldn't um, connect with me. And I was always longing for that kind of connection with her. So yeah, in the talk, I say, I would be waiting outside, waiting for her to let me in, which was very much reflective of me waiting to be let into her world. Mm. So not knowing which mom you were going to get, did that create in you a hypervigilance to always, you know, always trying to figure out what was going to happen next? Yeah, I was always scanning the room, scanning the energy of the room, scanning her mood, trying to figure out, you know, how she was. And that stayed with me. I do that to this day. I sort Mm -hmm. of take the pulse of other people when I'm around them. I'm like, I pick up on things. I pick up on energy. Um, Yeah, because that was how I learned to navigate her. Like if she was in a bad mood or angry, like I had to play my cards right so that I wasn't on the receiving end of her anger or or upset. Right. And when she was angry, mom, she was abusive. Yeah, she was. Um, And so, I mean, that in and of itself creates that creates that hyper awareness of trying to just keep yourself safe and uh, and out of harm's way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, how did that experience shape you uh, looking back on it, having to, you know, care for her and, and trying to figure out what was going on? How did it shape you as a person? You know, for many years, I was angry with her, which is very common for anyone who has a loved one with a mental illness, because when one person in the family suffers, the whole family suffers. Mm-hmm. So I was angry with her because I was so, I was always as a little girl and as a young adult, I was always focusing on the impact her illness was having on me and how much it sucked for me. Um, it wasn't until I was older that I was able to sort of step back from that being at the effects of her illness and really start to get curious about what life was like for her. Um, but I spent many years angry with her, resentful of her, um, and just, you know, very incomplete about my relationship with her. Um, but then, you know, through healing and therapy and self-discovery work, I could reach the point where I realized she did the best she could And she did it, you know, with a mental illness. She's trying to raise a daughter with a mental illness and try to take all these drugs that don't make you feel like yourself and, you know, recognize that hurt, hurt other people, you know, that hurt others. And then, you know, and then I was able to find the forgiveness and compassion for her. Right. I think empathy is a hard thing to reach 
Um, it's a it's a pretty abstract uh, concept for kids and young adults to to reach that empathic, you know, core of who we are. You know, I remember an older man telling me, if you could try really hard to separate your mother from the illness and recognize the way that your mother acts is because of the illness and love her for who she is, that will help. And it did. It did. So I Mm. I tried really hard as a high school girl to start to separate that I hate this illness more than anything. And I love my mother. Mm hmm. Which, right. To be able to hold those, <clears throat> excuse me, those two things in the same hand is, yeah. um, is difficult, but necessary to, um, to create that, to create that environment that you can survive in. Definitely. So oh, you've had, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but you know, I look back and I'm, I'm grateful for many of the experiences because I think it's taught me to be much more compassionate adult. Um, and it shaped me to be very, to be very persevering in what I do. Um, very empathetic, um, very curious about other people. Um, so I, I do think as crummy as it was, it served me into the woman that I've become. Mm-hmm. Good, good. So you've had some mental challenges, mental health challenges yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. And I'm adopted. So I never thought that I would deal with this because I was always so happy (laughs) that I was adopted because then I wouldn't have her illness. But I had always struggled with seasonal depression here in New Mm -hmm. Jersey. In the winter months, it gets very cold and gray. And I always struggled with it, but I never really had a major issue with it. I would navigate it pretty well. But then I was going through a divorce and it was really hard and everything was being turned upside down. I was married for 16 years, like together for 19. So my life was literally transforming in front of my eyes and I found myself dealing with depression and I knew I needed to get support. So I reached out, I had a a doctor. I'd always been comfortable with finding a therapist. So I I had a doctor and I, I got support, but it was really hard and it did give me a snapshot into what her depression might have felt like. So therefore that also helped me have a little bit more empathy for her. Yeah. So um, what kind of treatments did you uh, go through to help you through that, through that depression? I have an amazing doctor. I actually just interviewed him on my series, Michelle's Conversations That Matter. He was very conservative. And I remember going to him and asking him for medication to just help me deal with this. And he was very conservative. And he said, no, he's like, I really want you. This is a life event. I want you to find healthy vices that you can lean on to help you through this. Mm. And I said, okay. So basically he challenged me to find a way to navigate it um, all the while caring for me, of course. And so my cousin asked me to to uh, join him in training for triathlon. So I did. And I just threw myself into fitness and to training for this triathlon And it helped me because I was exercising, I was getting the endorphin high, I was eating well because I didn't want to not have energy. So my diet was better. I was looking better. I was feeling better. Um, And it helped me incredibly. And then, then I crossed the finish line and that was like incredible in terms of boosting my, my confidence, my sense of myself. 
Wow. I triathletes to me are like way up here on my respect list because <laughs> that's something I can never even imagine doing. So how long did you train for it? Oh, Lord. I, I'm just sort of like winching because I have one in July and I, and I really haven't trained much. <laughs> <laughs> I think that for, the, for the first one I did, I think it was like, I want to say it was like three months, 12 weeks. Wow. What's the hardest part of the triathlon for you? Swim. The swim. The swim? Yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's, it's largely psychological, they say, but you do have to train a lot to be able to endure like the, the distance. Yeah, definitely. Well, I started swimming this year and I have a new appreciation. I mean, I knew how to swim as a kid, but I'd never been really trained to swim. So I took some lessons and I've been swimming and I have a new appreciation for people who do open water swim. Yeah. I'm all about, all about a pool with a little bit of heat and no waves. <laughs> there you go. More enjoyable. Yes. So let's transition a little bit. Talk to me about the turning point to starting your own mental health company. How did that happen? It's so interesting because I think while I was working full time, I was, I was talking more about mental health because of my book and because of my TED talk. And I just was getting really ignited by, wow, the power of telling your story can really open a narrative, a dialogue about mental health that wasn't going to happen. And so it got me really excited and connected to it. And then um, I didn't, I never thought I would have the courage to start my own company, but then in my corporate job, they went through a restructuring and my position was eliminated. So wow. I had sort of like pushed from the nest. It was like, I had been in the pharma industry for 19 years and I thought I'm all, I'm going to retire into the sunset. But then, you know, this opportunity shows up where it's like, okay, well you can get back onto the hamster wheel and keep doing that. Or you can follow what's pulling at your heart. And that is to go and cause change in the mental health space. And that's what I chose to do is to start my own company. And so what does your company do? What's it called and what does it do? Yeah. Well, thank you. It's Trifecta Mental Health. And I work with large organizations or medium-sized organizations to really recenter employees because right now a lot of people are struggling. They, it may not be mental health challenge, but it might just be an imbalance from being quarantined, the amount of loss. Sure. Um, whatever it is, I teach psychological resilience and compassion in the workplace. And those are the two things that I'm, I'm really, um, I'm loving. I, I love when I get to sit down with, you know, 50, hundred employees in a, in a virtual setting and talk to them about things they can do to feel better and rebalance themselves um, so that they're just feeling good and they're able to translate that into their home life and into their work life. What do you think the biggest challenge for workers is coming out of the pandemic? I think, um, I think it's the uncertainty of what we're going back to. Every company has their own approach and there's no playbook to what the future of work looks like right now. Right. So I think, you know, it's what does hybrid look like for this company might not look like that for another company. It's, do I even feel comfortable going into the workplace? Can I still work from home? Um, it's this ambiguity of what is this new normal look like? And it's going to be up to organizations to define that. And I'm so hopeful that they're going to lean 
on what their employees need and ask for um, and create something that's mutually beneficial. Do you think uh, the advent, not advent, but the increased number of people who were working remotely, do you think that opens up the imagination a little bit of, of companies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, before this pandemic, it was like the old school mentality. If you're not here, you're not working. Well, we didn't have a choice in a pandemic. People had to show up and do their work and they were they were, you know, evaluated by what work they were doing, regardless of where they were doing it. So it kind of debunked this theory that you physically have to be in a, in a you know, community location to be proving that you're productive. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a beautiful thing. It, it proved how resilient and flexible we are as human beings and how businesses can still go on in the face of this kind of transition. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What is culture shifting work? Yeah. So when you think about it, you know, um, you look at someone with a physical disability, right? And so D&I, diversity and inclusion in the workplace, is really about inclusive spaces for people of all abilities, physical and, um, and non-physical, so visible and invisible, So it's really about creating a culture where everybody feels accepted for who they are and and what they bring to the table. Um, So when when you are looking at culture shifting work, it's like, what do we have to do to condition the environment so people feel a sense of psychological safety? in their workplace Mm -hmm. where they can be who they are without fear or embarrassment. um, And they truly do feel included in this culture. So there are specific things that you can do to create cultures of compassion when it comes to invisible disabilities and simple things like leaders going first and talking about maybe what they've navigated to create an open dialogue um, teaching, you know, people leaders, what it means to have conversations with people without fear, without fear, without just, just connecting with them and saying, how are you doing? And, and just being a source for them instead of looking the other way, if they notice something is off about their, their employee, Mm -hmm. but it takes work. Cultures don't shift overnight. You really need to do a a myriad of things in harmony to create a better environment. Yes. How do you think we got to this place where we don't talk about mental health and that there's shame um, involved in exposing that to people? How did we get there? I mean, I think you got to go back to decades ago when movies and the media portrayed mental illnesses like, you know, in the movies and the way people you know, I, I mean, right about the old movies and how they portrayed, you know, people in, in straight jackets and, um, you know, just the embarrassment of it instead of it being like just another organ. And I think it's, it's, progr- it's gotten much, much better. Even when I was a little girl and I didn't talk about it to where I am today, where you have celebrities openly talking about it. I mean, you have to really, it's easy to say we, we have so far to go, but it's really good to stop and say, we have athletes and celebrities openly talking about their mental health. Right. We've and, come a long ways. Yeah. Like the tennis player, right? Like I'm protecting right. my mental health. I mean, 
these are all huge leaps forward um, to get us away from that and normalize it so people don't feel so isolated. But it's still shame and embarrassment. And to be honest with you, ignorance, if you have a bias that mental health or mental illness is a shooting, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how you perceive everyone with a mental illness, not the person who's working next to you completely managing their, their depression and, and working productively, you know, then, then, you know, that's the problem. So we have to do a better job of um, having people understand their own biases and their relationship to mental health as yeah. they move. You know, I think you're right. I, that's a really good example. Um, Naomi Osaka pulls out of a tournament and says, man, I've got to take care of myself. And all of a sudden you have all of these other athletes that are like, you go girl, you, you take care of you. We get it. It's okay. And I think that is a really powerful message when we have that on a more global platform, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love, I love how many people are backing her and supporting her and acknowledging her for having the courage to do that. Um, it speaks volumes that your mental health is equally as important to your physical health. Right. And you know, the other thing that crossed my mind as this is unfolding is, is how young she is and to be able to acknowledge that it's not like, it's not like she's a seasoned middle-aged woman who, you know, who has struggled through life. She's a young woman who's willing to acknowledge that. And I think that is powerful too, to show a, that generation that that's okay to say it out loud. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you know, it's amazing. I, I talk to millennials all the time and millennials are amongst the population that's helping to move the needle when it comes to mental health, because they're talking about it. Mm -hmm. Like her generation is talking openly. They're, they're saying we need more mental health support. I'm going to just own how, how I'm feeling. They're helping us pave the way forward. And I think it's incredible. And they're also the ones demanding from employers more support or stigma-free environment or, Good. You know, so there's a lot of good moving in the right direction. That's great. Well, tell us about your book. What's the name of it? Breaking into my life. Breaking into my life. And why did you decide to write a book? So it was really interesting when I was asked to give the TED talk, I was very insecure. I always struggled with um, insecurity. I think it was partially because of my mom. Um, but I found myself on the red dot and people listening to me. Um, and so that was really exhilarating to know that like what I had to say mattered. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the momentum from that experience that just had me say, I'm going to write a book. Like if they'll listen to me for 10 minutes, maybe they'll listen to me if I write my book and have them, you know, understand what mental health is. Like, let me humanize mental health. So I set out to really vividly tell the story of what it was like to care for my mom in hopes that someone would really start to understand and, and have a different perspective on mental health. Mm -hmm. What kind of responses do you get from telling your story? It's really remarkable what the power of one person going first can do, right? People say, have said to me, oh my goodness, I think my mother was bipolar, but she was never diagnosed. Or my father must have been bipolar. He acted the exact same way your mother did. And, you know, there's a comfort in knowing I'm not alone. Like mm -hmm. what I experienced wasn't in a vacuum. Like someone else experienced that. Um, I think, and the letters that I got after I released the book was incredible. But I think the most 
the most, um, the most impressionable letter that I got was from a young girl whose mom is bipolar. And she said, I want you to know I read your book and I have hope, hope that I'm going to be okay because oh. it's hard. So I was like, Oh, that's, that's gold. Yeah, definitely. That was worth it. <laughs> and the book is available on Amazon, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. I'm just about to record the audio book. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. That is terrific. Well, one last question for you, Michelle. I just wondered, what do you most want people to get out of your life story? That in the face of every type of adversity that's ever been thrown your way, you have the pen in your hand and you get to create from here forward. You, you are not mm. defined by what your past has, has given to you. It is It has shaped you, but it is not defined your future. The pen is in your hand. You get to create that. Mm, That's good. I heard a speaker once that said, um, your circumstances and your past don't define you, but they refine you. And I, and I just love that because I've always, I've always kind of hailed back to that as I'm being refined, not defined. I'm not a label. And I think, I think that's fantastic. Well, I encourage you to get the book, read the book, listen to the Ted talk, look up Michelle E. Dickinson on YouTube. You can find the Ted talk. There are two Michelle Dickinson. So be sure you put in the E to listen to this Michelle and um, listen to it and be encouraged. Michelle, thanks so much for your time and for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jill. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and on Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. Email Jill at JillRiley.org.